You want to live a long life? You want to be successful? Give people hope. Because to break the cycle of helplessness, you need hope. And hope is what my future is. And we want people to self-actualize into fulfilled, engaged people. But we spend all of our time finding tricks and techniques when in fact, if we just built the individual from the inside out, we would have everything we need. It's giving you that future hope. It goes back to Maslow's theory that if my security, safety, and protection are threatened, I can't self-actualize. I can't even get to belonging to self-actualize. I'm actually stuck. And so what happens is we don't realize the psychological impact to individuals when we don't give them the future. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Troy Hall and dive deep into hat numbers three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur, as we uncover Fanny's rules and discuss the importance of cohesion culture to all of us entrepreneurs. Dr. Troy is an award-winning culture strategist, radio show host, speaker, best-selling author, and talent retention expert. Dr. Troy infuses humor and great storytelling into our discussion of culture, talent, leadership, engagement, and peak performance. With more than 40 years of experience and a PhD, Dr. Troy knows what he's talking about. So let's welcome Dr. Troy to the Seven Hats. Dr. Troy, welcome to the Seven Hats. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I wear 14, so seven is a, is a, <laughs> is a break for me. I love it. You know. When, uh, when getting to know you, I really fell in love with your story. I wanted to begin the show discussing your family, your childhood, and the subsequent journey into your business success. Childhood lessons shape our destiny and path. And it's very clear that you were very close with your folks. You know, you had a profound experience as a 12-year-old boy. Tell us first about that experience. Well, when I was 12 years old, uh, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And when you find out that information some 50 some years ago, the initial prognosis is the person is going to die. And that's what we actually thought. We thought mom was going to die. I lived in a small rural town in West Virginia. We had limited uh, educational experiences, uh, poor economic conditions, and we were at least 30 to 45 minutes from the nearest medical facility uh, to really provide any help or support. And uh, mom, when she told us this information, of course, it was devastating to us. She decided that she was going to wait and have her operation when the school year ended. And that was a few months away so that I would then be ready to take care of her. Uh, I had a great relationship with my dad, by the way, uh, except that mom was the nurturer and the caregiver. Dad was the protector and provider. And those were the rules that and the roles that they uh, chose to play by. In those months prior to the operation, mom taught me how to write my first check. She taught me how to clean. She taught me how to go grocery shopping how to plan for meals, how to pack dad's lunch. Uh, They had very specific routines. And so the idea was to see how could I uh, filter into those routines so that it would be the least disruptive to dad as possible. So mom made a choice during that time. And she said, you know, I'm going to make a choice to live. She said, up until I got this doctor's notice, I was going to live anyway. It would have been whatever it was going to happen to be until the good Lord took me away. So she said, I want you to understand something. She said, I want you to understand that your character in life will always be decided by the choices you make, not the circumstances you find yourself in. We were poor by circumstance, not by choice. She had cancer by circumstance, not by choice. So during that summer, mom taught me so many leadership rules and so many uh, real good practices in life that it just became fitting for me to remember those and to kind of put those in place. So the good news is mom lived 43 years beyond that awful summer. The bad news that mom ended up getting dementia 
which is a part of Alzheimer's, toward the end of her life. And so I wrote a book called Fanny Rules, A Mother's Leadership Lessons That Never Grow Old, as a tribute to her leadership and to what she taught me. I also, because Alzheimer's stole her memories and stole her from me and from all the rest of us, I said, why not give them back? So I started with 31 teachable moments that I'm actually giving back, uh, which are memories of, of these lessons that mom taught me throughout my life and really just felt that it was important to, uh, to put them out there. So I have nine rules. So 31 teachable moments wrapped around nine rules. And uh, it, really the information advice is good for anyone from the backyard to the boardroom. And I'm so excited about the fact that the book, the proceeds of the book are gonna benefit the Alzheimer's Association. So mom is the star of the book and the Alzheimer's benefits from the book. And so a whole new generation of people are gonna get a chance to learn this wisdom because some of these folks need a little fanny of their own. Yes, you know, my grandfather had uh, dementia prior to passing. It's really a devastating disease, as you know. Yes. Um, my wife's grandma right now is going through it. Uh, it. She's in a ripe old age of 98 at this point. But a couple of years ago, I think maybe a year ago, she started um, seeing the decline. The awesome part is your mom's name is Fanny. Yes. And I never thought I would say this on a podcast, but we share that in common. My mom's name is Fanny, which is really interesting. So I can't wait to dig in a little uh, into your, <laughs> into Fanny's rules, because they might be my Fanny's rules as well. So we'll see. So what were the lessons that your mom felt were the most important to impart to you before she passed on? Well, treating people. So it was always about how you treated someone. So you never held yourself in a higher regard than someone else. When you were on the porch, you spoke first. So as people pass by, you talk to them. You didn't make them talk to you first. So anytime you entered a room, anytime you did something, you were always the first to speak. You were to be respectful of the individual. So like, for instance, if you were invited to someone's house and they didn't offer you a glass of water or a place to sit, you stood and were thirsty until they did. That all just became part of it. And really not caring what people's roles were, but who people were. So Mr. Jenkins was a local janitor at the uh, bank where mom went. And of course she knew Mary Ellen who ran the switchboard operator and she knew Mr. Lowndes who was the president of the bank, but mom treated each of those individuals with the same level of respect. And there's a specific story in Fannie Rules that talks about her visit to the bank and what that was like with me as a child. So, And some of these stories and rules are things that came to life to me as I was growing up. And then I heard you know, then when we had this experience at 12, some of these things from earlier in life all started to make sense. And then I continued to expound upon them to, uh, to make that of interest. And she would always encourage me and tell me, she says, you can be anything you want to be. She says, you're not limited. You limit yourself. Nobody else limits you. She said, so successes and failures will not shape your life. It's how you handle them. And she said, you can be anything you want to be. And she says, young man, if you want to be a janitor, like Mr. Jenkins, you go right ahead. She said, you just be that janitor. She says, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to come to your place. And she said, you better be the best janitor ever. And I'm going to look in the corners and make sure those corners are clean because young man, anyone can sweep in the middle of the floor. And those were the type of lessons that she taught me. She said, you don't want to be mediocre. You want, you want to either be hot or cold. She said, don't be middle of the road. Choose a side, choose an opinion, choose something and go for it. Go with the gusto. And she said, and you can go with it fervently as much as you want. Just remember this one thing. Don't make any choices that cause harm to yourself or others. So you see, you didn't have to worry too much about, you like, are there a lot of rules? Because the rules were simple. It's like, if I'm going to have respect to you, and I would expect that respect in return, and it's a pretty simple rule to follow. So if I make choices and decisions in life, oh, I want to do this, or I want to do that, I just have to remember, would I cause harm to myself by doing it, or would I cause harm to someone else? And if I do, then I should reconsider it. She didn't say not to do it. She just said, you should consider it. Those are the kinds of things. So one of the things that I took from that was this whole thing of mediocre, because I do a lot of leadership training. I do consulting and executive coaching and, and so mediocre. So for me, I recrafted what she said into this quote. I kind of give her credit because she started the whole thing. But basically it says this, mediocre settles to the bottom and complains about the view. Oh, love that. 
Yeah, it really is. It's like, oh my gosh, you stop and think about that for a minute. You go, right. People who are mediocre, they just sort of, they want to complain about everything. Like it's their, it's not their fault. It's not their problem. It's not this, it's not that. When you choose that mediocre mindset, but if you choose a mindset of hot or cold, then you're not, you're, you're not going to be mediocre anymore because you've now picked a spot and now you're going to speak from that spot. And you were also very close to your dad, right? I was, yeah. So I had so it's funny when I told my brother that I was going to write this, he said, Well, don't leave dad out. And I said, No, 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 no. I said, Dad'll be in it, but the mom's a star of the book. So so dad will be a supporting actor, which was really pretty much his whole pattern of life. As a matter of fact, when with my mom's dementia, uh, mom and dad moved in and lived with us for five years before they passed away. And dad made every sacrifice possible all for mom. Mm. He, he gave up everything that was materialistically important to him because singularly the most important person in his life was mom. And so every choice and decision that we made for her care was all about her. He died shortly after she passed away. You know, you could think that, she di- that he died of a broken heart. He actually had an aneurysm. He had planned to live longer, but it just didn't work out that way. So they, they were married for 65 years. They both lived to be 85. Uh, my mom was born and raised in the same house, and she lived there for 80 years until she came to live with us. Wow. I know it's a tough act to follow, but what did you learn from your dad? Well, you know, my dad was pretty straightforward, and he had a great sense of humor. So my mom was very reserved. She had a good sense of humor, but reserved. My dad's, <laughs> when you hear me laugh and you hear me talk, that's my dad. My dad had a hearty laugh. He just had this great outlook on life, and not much bothered him, and he would kind of just it would roll off of him. He might, you know, he certainly has emotions as we all do for the moment, but generally he would kind of move it along and kind of have that, that lightheartedness. And so one of the chapters in the book is called uh, Space Pants, Step Ladders and Honking Horns. And so the Space Pants at the end of that story is a little snippet of something that uh, was a story from my dad and it had to do with Space Pants. So the first part of the story has to do with the lesson that um, with my interaction with my brother, and I had a very important space toy, Billy Blastoff. So it was my favorite toy. And uh, so he played with it. I got in trouble based on my interaction. Listen, he didn't get in trouble for playing with it because of what I did, which was I took more action than I needed to. And so, of course, mom was correcting my action, which I then translate later for, as a parent and uh, because I had two children, a boy and a girl. And I would tell them, I said, look, if you try to act like the parent and correct one of the two of them, I have to spend all my time correcting you instead of correcting the problem. So let's not get our authority in the wrong spot. And that's really what mom had taught me at that time was that there was a place for my authority. And my authority was not to correct my brother. My, my opportunity was to present my case to her. And then if she felt there was something that needed to happen, then she would take and handle that. So I kind of learned that. And then my dad gave me a, uh, a little card uh, for uh, space pants. Now, I don't want to tell any more because I want this to be the story. Like, I want to tease people to still buy this book because the proceeds of the book benefit the Alzheimer's Association. So there's a little story in there about this special business card he gave me that has space pants on it. It's good for one free pair of space pants. I'll make sure to get the book. So you've gotten some great early lessons um, in life and, and probably business. And you worked in financial companies for your whole career. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, pretty much, except for I, I ran a marketing and advertising agency for a while, uh, but most of it was still financial services. Got it. And then you got your MBA and PhD in global leadership and entrepreneurship. Yes. So how much did you find that your academic knowledge applied to the real world? You know, you always ask, you know, you go through an MBA, you go through a PhD. Are there any or many things you would think we can't learn in school? Well, you know, it's interesting that you asked that question. So uh, the one thing that mom always talked about was common sense. It's like, will you really look at things from a really practical perspective? And so there was a lot of, of energies put around being practical. She also reminded me that there was an important aspect in life. And it was that I didn't have to be a Mr. Know-it-all, but could I be a Mr. Learn-it-all? So, and it was about then using the, the, what you learned. So a lot of my studies and time with mom early in life, as she was the one that I talked to school about, she would ask me, she would say, well, how are you applying it? How are you using it? How will you use it? You know, sometimes people say, well, look, the Pythagorean theory, will I ever use that again? Like, why do I even care about some of that stuff? 
But the reality is there's a lot of things that you will learn, like sometimes going through a course that you don't even think is important. It's not the coursework that's going to be applicable later. It's the fact that I did the discipline and the dedication and the structure to go through it, even though I didn't want to. I learned so much about myself and so much about pushing through projects and pushing through things, even though I may not have used some of the quote unquote facts of the course to really be legitimate. And I think that's true in all of life, that we should be looking at things from a multiple viewpoint, a multiple perspective, that if we go into it thinking we're going to learn enough information so we can clear a category on Jeopardy, then we're going to the course for the wrong reason. What we want to do is go and say, how can we be inspired? How will that influence my creativity and my outlook on life, my perspective? And will I see things from a different vantage point or am I only going to see it from the way I look at it? Can I turn it twisted? Can I, can I walk over to the other side and look at how somebody else is seeing it? And that's what education does. And I really am grateful. My parents never had the monies to pay for any of my education. I've been fortunate enough to work um, or receive scholarships or receive some tuition reimbursement from work. You know, all of this education has all been possible because of those teachings from mom and dad in the very beginning, but also with my effort that I have actually applied to it as well. And when you think about it, the story for me to come from this small town with barely two nickels to rub together to come to a space where I am today is a testament to the fact that when you receive encouraging information from individuals who can impact your life, you should be listening to them. It's one of the reasons that I tell folks, it doesn't matter whether you've got great parents or it does matter whether you have great parents or not, but it doesn't matter that you're missing out. Just get a mentor. If you have a mentor, your mentor can fill in those spaces. Don't just simply be, oh, I'm a victim of circumstance because I don't have parents that really will support me or pour into me. Find a mentor, find someone, listen to someone who will take it, who will take care of you. And yes, would it be nicer if somebody else would come to you first? But that shouldn't stop you because my choice is I want to have that information. So I'm going to seek it out and I'll find it. And I will tell you that if you put your mind to it, there isn't anything that should stop you. We do live in a, in a dualistic world and there is two sides of the coin and they're both true. So whether you see yourself as a, an abused child who suffered through life or when you see yourself having opportunities because of such trauma in your life, they're both true. Yes. It's just what you focus on, right? Exactly. So in your years of working with entrepreneurs and business leaders, do you think that most are too focused on achievement instead of fulfillment kind of going through? to my theory that most burn out at the end and ask themselves the question, is this all there is? Well, first of all, let's say this. As human beings, we're always seeking our purpose. We wanna make sure that what we do makes a difference. So what I try to, to tell to the entrepreneurs that I work with, those that I executive coach, what difference do you wanna make? And then focus on that difference and let that difference be it. If you wanna focus on the journey as being your difference and focus on the journey. If you wanna focus on the destination, let it be the destination. I think that's what's really empowering is for that we have free will, we have choice, we have the opportunity to, to do it. And what I would say is that when people burn out, they burn out because they have put forth a lot of these energies and they try to do it on their own. There's really a couple of mis key mistakes that, that entrepreneurs or leaders make. Number one is assuming that they have to be perfect. And the second thing is they have to do it all by themselves. And they sometimes think that if I ask someone else, it's a sign of weakness. And I try to encourage people to understand that asking for help is not a sign of weakness. Pretending like you know what you're doing when you don't is a sign of weakness. So really, it's about encouraging that. And I, I'm the kind of guy, I, I really do believe like in the fulfillment. So really speaking now to some positive way of what you were talking about for the fulfillment, that will you burn out? if you're focusing on fulfillment versus if you're, if you're just focusing on achievement, I can't say for sure. What I think is there's a good blend. It's an integration between achievement and fulfillment. I think there's, there's gonna be a tighter integration to it. And I like to think about that the same way as I talk about work-life balance. So I think for entrepreneurs, I would say this, stop saying work-life balance. First of all, you're confusing your mind. You wanna say work-life integration. So anything you wanna do, you wanna integrate. And I'll explain to them why and to you. So you're listening. You may not visually be able to see it, but here's what you can think through. Imagine you're holding a rounded ball of 
red clay in one hand and a rounded ball of blue clay in the other. When I say balance, the initial reaction is, is that I have to look to the left or the right because I'm not holding them close to each other. Typically balancing, you think of scales, you think of something being apart, and all of a sudden you're trying to counterbalance the weight between them. I say integration because what I want you to do is take the red and blue clay and put it together. And I want you to put that clay together and guess what? Now you will see where it blends together. It's another color, but yet there's still separation of the red and the blue. So for me, it's about the integration because then now my focus, my hands are together and I'm looking at it in one spot. I'm not looking to the left. I'm not looking to the right. I'm now looking focused on what it is. So I think that you should take fulfillment and achievement and assume that they're in both hands, bring them together. I love that. And it's true. You only have one life and business is part of it. So it's just life. You just have to figure out what other aspects you want to focus on as well. Absolutely. Let's learn a little bit more about your journey. So what was your journey in becoming an expert in culture and leadership? Well, uh, you know, again, having all this experience and working with teams. So my PhD is in global leadership and entrepreneurship, which you had mentioned before. But my dissertation was in group dynamics with an emphasis on cohesion. And one of the things that I learned through the PhD program was when I worked with my dissertation chair, he said, you want to know what you want to be known for. He said, you're not going to solve world peace and you're not going to cure a disease through your dissertation. He said, but you want to make sure that whatever topic you do is something that will relate to you. It'll be your authority. So because I, in, in my business, I have teams and lots of people reporting to me through you know, various uh, aspects of life, I thought, you know, this is really great. I like people. And so my mom taught me a lot of people skills. So I feel like I'm pretty good in that area. And so I thought, well, let me just work on that. Well, cohesion came up. And as I continued to study it, I recognized that one of the things that was missing in organizations is retaining talent. And so I thought about it. I spent a lot of time in my career doing training. I have participated in some acquisition aspects. I know all of that that happens in an organization based on my, my various positions. And But what I recognize is that we spend a lot of time talking about our employees as top talent, but do we spend enough time trying to retain them? Or do we only get them and use them and burn them out and then they're no longer effective? So. I started then working on that. And what I recognized is we could create a cohesion culture. So I wrote my first best-selling title, which was Cohesion Culture, Proven Principles to Retain Your Top Talent. And in that book, I provided the information. It's in three uh, distinct acts. The first act is be a leader because if the leader's not right, then it doesn't matter what happens after that. You gotta get yourself right. You gotta, you gotta know what things you need to be doing. So I wanted to make sure we, I, you know, I or the leader was grounded. Then the next thing is building the culture. What does that look like? And the culture is not just a summation of your rituals and traditions and norms and protocols, but it's also how your values relate to your beliefs and your attitudes and your behaviors. All of that also forms your culture. So having all that work together, I wanted to give people an idea to say, oh, this is how you build your culture. And then lastly, the third chapter is bring it to life. It's putting it all together. And I didn't want people to have to like, you know, sometimes you buy books and you feel like, oh my gosh, I didn't learn anything. And I have to go buy two more to figure out what the first one was telling me. And I said, you know, I'm confident enough that I will have more books to write in my life. I'm going to give as much information as I can into this first book. And it ended up being a best-selling title. Very excited about the help to individuals like the entrepreneurs who are listening to uh, clients that I work with. We use the book uh, in teaching. I've created a whole teaching curriculum around it called Cohesion Culture Camp. And so there's a course about it. And it's a five-week, uh, five-module program. And it's sort of a little bit of do it on your own. And you can get leadership advice and you can get some individual coaching. Just depends on what you want to do with the program. So uh, that was important to me to make sure that that information was available. And that's kind of how I got started with the whole idea with culture. And the thing I also recognize is that strategies and practices of HR create a foundation for organizations, but it's the leaders that actually make or break the culture. Leaders are the ones who talk to the people and screw it up, or the leaders are the ones who talk to the people and they do it right. So I wanted to focus on leadership and make sure that the leaders were it. So although there are a lot of people who think I'm an HR guy. I'm really not. I'm a leader guy. 
And so the culture for me was all about how leaders support the culture and bring those practices and strategies to life that are sometimes really crafted within that HR conversation. I love that you defined culture and culture has a role in team building. So the question is, how important of a factor is culture to an entrepreneur? Let's start there. It's very important. So a cohesion culture is about belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment. It's about creating that workspace where people have a sense of not just fitting in, but truly feeling like they're at someplace special. And then it's the value. Do they understand not just how to respect and trust and get along with people, but do they know what their value means? Do they understand their contribution? Do they know that what they do contributes to someone else in the organization? And do they understand how that translates to the consumer, whether they are a consumer-facing individual or not? And then lastly, shared mutual commitments. And, And that's the one spot that I will tell you that for the entrepreneurs, please listen and listen carefully to this. Shared mutual commitment is not, I give people a list of goals and tasks, and now we have shared mutual commitment. Shared mutual commitment begins when the leader first invests in the employee and gives the employee now a reason to invest back. And so the biggest mistake is people don't tell people what their future is. You want to live a long life, you want to be successful, give people hope. Because to break the cycle of helplessness, you need hope. And hope is what my future is. And we want people to self-actualize into fulfilled, engaged people. But we spend all of our time finding tricks and techniques when, in fact, if we just built the individual from the inside out, we would have everything we need. Building that mutual commitment starts out with me working with you immediately and telling you, here's, Yuval, here's what can happen to you in this organization. Here's where you can go. Here's where you can grow. And it's not about you trying to take over and be the CEO. It's not presenting yourself as a senior vice president when you just start as an entry level, but it's giving you that future hope. And why that is so important, it goes back to Maslow's theory that if my security, safety, and protection are threatened, I can't self-actualize. I can't even get to belonging to self-actualize. I'm actually stuck. And so what happens is we don't realize the psychological impact to individuals when we don't give them the future and we don't help them see the future. And by helping them see it doesn't mean we're taking it away or pre-defining it, or it's like predestiny. But what we're doing is we're giving them a glimpse of what it could be like. And now they get an opportunity to play and in a very great way. And all of this really works for organizations. So focus on cohesion. Why? Cohesion is a causal phenomenon. It's not just correlational. We can make a lot of decisions in business today correlating two items, but cohesion is causal, which means that when it's present, you get performance. The level of performance you get is the level of engagement you seek, which is finding people who are excited and energetic, individuals who go the extra mile, who help other people, who will be loyal to themselves and loyal to the company. By the way, important, they'll be loyal to themselves and loyal to the company. And that becomes a very well-rounded individual. So remember, cohesion is causal. It happens. It's not correlational. Great leaders have a knack promoting their vision as the team's vision and not just their own. And I see that all the time when I speak with an individual and I can not only convey my vision of the future, but engage them to make them feel part of that vision. Yes everything changes. It is. Everything changes. So the entrepreneurs need to adopt transformative behaviors. So again, these are some things that I cover in the book, but very simply, it's there's four aspects of this transformative leader. First of all, a transformative leader always focuses on someone else first yep. then self. Didn't say you leave yourself out. You're not a martyr, but you focus on others then self. You also need to be thinking about vision and teaching it. It's not just saying the vision. It's not just hoping people will follow you, but teaching them the vision, they can own it on their own and they will support it in ways that you never even thought were possible. And oftentimes we don't think that people can really, you know, maybe they're they're not going to get it. So we kind of hold back. We want to water it down. I'm saying like, you know, you need to know your audience, but for the most part, you should be putting that future out there for people to allow them to play, to be engaged and to do that. You have to be a good social architect. If you can't get along with people, it's not going to work. I don't care what your vision is. You're going to show up at some point in time. You have to create trusted environments. This is where people know that you're not going to sell them out. 
that the decisions you make have pure purity of heart, that you're not going to do something for the company just to fatten it up so you can sell it. And then all the rest of the people are going to figure out, are they going to make it or not? And if that is your plan, then maybe you should include more people or figure out how you can include people in that so that they're not truly left out or feel like you have been disingenuous to them. And you want to be um, in that trusted environment. You want to make sure that people can say what they feel in a safe space without them thinking they're going to receive some retribution as a result of speaking their mind. And then lastly, it's does the leader have self-regard? Does the leader have self-awareness? Does, is the leader that type of person that can have that out-of-body experience to be correcting things on the fly? Or do they have to wait to be told they screwed up before they will apologize? I like to hope that some people will figure out to apologize before somebody else tells them. Because when you apologize after somebody tells you something, you can't tell whether they figured it out on their own or they're only apologizing because they got caught. I like to think, like, let's not get caught. So let's think about that. So take those four aspects of a transformative leader and really apply that into this cohesion culture of belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment. And there is money in this. You know, over $7 trillion is spent annually on a global basis for companies where teams do not work cohesively together. They don't get along. They don't have this sense of belonging. So they're just fitting in. They're just doing whatever it takes. We know that when a group works cohesively together or a team does, you can receive up to a 50% increase in the productivity and creativity in the output from those individuals. I already know that if you don't retain talent, you're going to spend up to 50% of that person's salary finding a replacement, not only for the body to do the job, but replacing all the organizational intelligence that they took out the door with them. And that organizational intelligence is costly to companies because what it is, it's the, I know the answers to the questions and you don't have to look very far to get the answers and I can smooth problems through. Brand new people don't know. They all start from the beginning. But when you have someone who's been there for 10, 15, 20 years, they know how to go in the systems and look for things. They know who to talk to. They can solve problems faster. Their creative minds are already engaged because they have seen things and been experienced to them. So it is costly for organizations not to focus on cohesion. And so that is one of the reasons that I've become you know, such a speaker of this cohesion culture. And if I relate it back to Fanny, Fanny was teaching me about cohesion, even though we didn't call it that. She was teaching me how to belong in a family, but to extend that belonging to other people. She was telling me about value of the respect that you have for individuals. And she was committing to me by teaching me and, and looking for those shared commitments that we had for our family living together. That was a cohesion culture. I just didn't even know it then. It's really crazy because when my co-founder and I started Promomesh, which is the current company that I'm running, the number one thing that we discussed, number one, more important than anything else, was the culture. Because we knew, and by the way, we've, we're, we've adapted many of the suggestions and gold nuggets that you've just spoke about. And they're really true. They're really an amazing array of, of actions that a leader can take in order to create a great culture. But I'll tell you something. The reason why Promomesh is so successful is because culture was our number one, more than product, more than, than clients. Yes, those are all important, but setting that initial culture is super, super urgent in this uh, day and age. So the interesting part about culture is that today we're living in a unique time. You know, There could be a situation where there are four to five generations in the workplace trying to collaborate and relate to each other. Do you have any tips for leaders who must learn to relate to diverse groups of people in order to manage? Uh, each effectively? Well, the first thing I would say to them is stop treating people like generations is a category that everybody fits into. Generations is just really the time in which you were born. It's experiences that you have. What you should be looking for are the behaviors. So if you truly have amassed people into your organization based on values, it shouldn't matter what generation they are, it's the value. If trust is the value, if honesty is the value, doesn't matter whether you're a baby boomer, or a Gen X, a Gen Y, or a Gen Z, right? Should it make any difference if that's it? If teamwork, if I believe in teamwork, does it make any difference what generation I am? No, absolutely not. Focus on the core values of the organization. Make sure they are right and make sure that people know what those core values are. 
live them, breathe them, make them come to life. Don't make them just words that are on a wall, some fancy bolded lettering in some email or some job description, but actually demonstrate them, bring them to life. If that's what you believe in, then make it work and let it become the language that everyone lives and breathes and, and celebrates. That's really what we need to do. And the main reason that I'll tell you about this generations and why it doesn't work is because I'm a Gen Y trapped in a baby boomer body. <laughs> but you do have to agree, though, that even though you can hire for values, the mindset is different among different generations, especially leadership styles, right? So how do you account for that? Well, it's all part of how you craft the mind. So if you hire by value and then don't do anything to influence the mind, then you have not done anything to help solve the problem. So, or to, or to get you to the end point that you want to be. So it, there's a section in the book I call influence thinking. And so it very quickly is that it's the mindset. What is the mindset of the individual? You shouldn't be leaving it to chance, you know? So you hire this great person, you hire these values of teamwork, but you let them have crazy thoughts and you don't even bother to figure out what those crazy thoughts are. You need to guide those thoughts into the behaviors that you want them to have because those behaviors are it. I say that this is the leader's responsibility. It's to motivate, influence, and enable others to be successful. When you motivate, it's about stimulating. You want to stimulate the person to something. So what do you want them to do? You don't just stimulate them like you filled air in a balloon and then let the balloon out and it goes wherever it wants to go. You actually focus them in a direction. You influence them, which means you mold their thinking. What are the courses you want them? What are the discourse? What were the conversations that you need to have with individuals? What are, how do you get them to express their opinions and then get a chance to influence those opinions? Do you look at, at grounded facts? You know, what is the perspective? Do you teach people different views? Do you, um, do you present yourself from a place of cultural superiority within the organization or cultural relativity within the organization? I'll come back to that, but that's an important aspect of it. And so, then the last part is what action will you take? People learn from the actions. So they'll learn from what you, from what they observe and what they see. Uh, it's also in that doing. So really you have learning from a tactile experience where people are touching and doing, but when people observe and then they go to replicate or they have an opportunity to imitate that, then they can do that and then they'll set it in place. And that's all part of social learning. So there's so much that we could unwrap that don't really have enough time for in all of this in all of this conversation, but it is up to the leader. When you bring people in, what is your learning curriculum look like? So you're bringing people who have values of teamwork. What do you know about their mindset of teamwork? Do you just assume that they're going to have the same feelings that you do? Well, you know what happens when you assume. So let's not assume. Let's focus on what we want that to be. And let's take it not for granted, but let's put it out in expectation. Now, does that mean that every person gets the same level of information? No. You want to gear it toward their levels of expertise, but the conversation should be important enough to you that you have figured out where it fits in the process with that employee coming along. And probably the biggest issue is, in, is what I want to speak to here because of diversity, equity, and inclusion. When you put a cohesion culture in place in your organization, you're building diversity, equity, and inclusion. People are belonging, they have value, and the shared mutual commitment really you're defining the whole thing. And so the reason that I say that is many leaders may need to recalibrate their thinking, their, their own mindset, because they may be viewing culture and the way things are happening from a place called cultural superiority, meaning that they will judge and value everything that happens based on their interactions with their own culture and what they have defined to believe to be true. However, being more culturally relative gives us an opportunity to have more diversity and inclusion because being culturally relative means that I will understand how that custom tradition and norm happened. What were the circumstances? Why did it get to be that way? And if you only view from being cultural superior versus culturally relative, you will turn people off. You will turn people away. It's one of the reasons we have so many individuals in our society who are marginalized and oppressed today why we don't accept people from different countries because we think that they are skewed in their viewpoints because we only know the right thing here on our Western world. To give you just an example, and I want to set this example up, not so that people will listen and go, wow, Troy is wonderful and brilliant, but because I applied the difference between cultural relativity and cultural superiority, and I practice what I preach. So in a session, I was teaching a leadership session at De La Salle University in Manila. 
and the Asian students that were there were about ready to go into another higher level of education. And so in my leadership program, I kind of asked the students, and I use this program when I've done it in, the, in, um, in Europe or Canada or the United States, and I would say, raise your hand if you think you're a leader. Crickets, exactly what just happened in the last three or four seconds. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody did anything. It was like still. And so I had this moment and I'm, thinking, I'm freaking out for the moment, like, well, maybe they didn't hear the question, but I know they heard the question. And so I just paused for a moment and I said to them, I had to go away from my traditional script, my traditional way of doing it. I stopped for a minute and I said, okay, I noticed that nobody raised their hand. Could anyone help me understand why you didn't raise your hand? And slowly people would speak up and they said, we hadn't earned the title. We don't claim that title until we have perfected or until we have gone through a course or received some certification or some acknowledgement from someone, then they claim the title. And if I had applied this Western thinking, I would have missed out on getting that information. What I would have done potentially is berated the group for not having the courage to raise their hand, to say shame on them for not being a leader when in fact, everyone who lives and breathes and offers information is a leader. But I could really get it from their perspective and create an opportunity for them to still lead in a way that didn't allow them to worry about claiming the title, but could they still do the actions? And it was just a really good experience to do that. And that's what happens when we apply this cultural superiority. We're not listening to people. We have to listen to people. If we want to know why there's so much yelling going on in our marketplace today over cultural diversity and, and inclusion, it's because we haven't listened. And what do people do in an argument? They get louder. Why do they get louder? They get louder because they think they're going to get heard. So what we have to do is stop encouraging people to yell. Actually, listen. As an entrepreneur, I would say to you, surround yourself with good people and listen to them. Stop thinking that you know everything and stop putting the pressure on that you have to do everything yourself. Those are some good takeaways that should help you in, um, in running your business. Stephen Covey, seek to understand before being understood. That's a, a wise lesson. So what do you do when culture is violated? Well, I mean, you know, what can you do? You try to look for ways that you can influence. If you, uh, McClelland, who is a great theorist who, um, you know, talked about his theory of motivation, needs motivation theory. He says there are three elements. They are affiliation, achievement, and power. By the way, they align very perfectly with the cohesion culture. And in power, what he's saying is the shared mutual commitment. You can have authoritative power or institutional power, or you have influential or personal power. And so a cohesion culture utilizes the personal power, not your authoritative power. If you have a culture where the individuals aren't doing it, you have to try to find a way to use your personal power. Institutional power says, I'm the authority. I'm going to tell you, you have to do it this way or else. Now, there are times when that's important. You're following a process. You've got a regulatory issue. I mean, you've got some guideline. Your system says you have to you have to pull lever A before you can pull lever B. And the person says, "Well, I don't want to pull either one. I just want to pull C." And you go, "Well, look, you can't do that. You got to pull A and then B." I mean, yeah, you're going to have institutional power that you're going to assert, but you're not asserting institutional power to be difficult or to be a donkey. That would be the word I'd use. My mom said, "Don't be a donkey." She'd say something else, but I'm going to say this is PG podcast. I'm going to say, "Don't be a donkey." So. You know, kind of when you're thinking about it, yeah, I'm providing information, but I'm not being a donkey about it. I am being a person of influence and I want people to see things. And how do you get people to see things? Ask them questions, open-ended, non-leading questions. Allow them to expose their thoughts, their viewpoints, to really find out why. And then see if there is an opening for people to understand something different. You know, let's face it. If somebody doesn't want to do it, I can't make them do it. Yeah, you can't. You know, you speak of talent retention, that acquisition is the single greatest challenge for business leaders in this globally competitive yes. landscape. And you expanded on that a little bit, and maybe you want to say a little more on it, but you also touch upon the notion of developing employees from seed to trees. And I thought that was really great. How does that relate? What do you have to say about that? Well, for me, the whole concept of seeds to trees is this, when you're typically working in an HR perspective and somebody of 20 years leaves, you want the person who's going to fill the spot to, to be a tree right? Mm, yes. But you don't, you end up getting seedlings. Yes. So the idea is, can you actually mentor the seedling to get to be the tree? And that's what it really means. It means taking care of people along the way, nurturing them. I learned that when I was in the Philippines and I had an opportunity to, to learn from Raquel Choa, who is the queen of chocolate in the Philippines. So I have some royalty there. I've had a chance to, I meet her and 
We're still Facebook friends. We talk all the time. And in that lesson, we talked about the cacao tree, which is where you get the chocolate. And so when the cacao tree, if left on its own, bears fruit in five years. But if you allow the cacao tree to start out growing as a seedling, somewhere around about nine months or so, you clip the first bit of green leaves off and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I put this green off. What am I doing? You then slit the stalk and then you graft to it a piece of mature tree, wrap it right back around so that no bugs or anything gets in it and lets it grow. It will actually produce fruit in less than two years. Wow. So it, it takes on it takes on the maturity. Yeah. So that's, again, that's mentoring. And that's why that is so important. So when you're going from seeds to trees, make sure the mentor is a part of that seeds to trees. If not, then your, your seedling will only mature as fast as it was designed to grow, not any faster. But when you actually influence and you put someone else in, that's why I said before, like mindset, you know, you just let the seed grow. The seed's just going to grow and do whatever it normally does. But if you want to change it, then enhance it, fertilize it, give it some, some maturity. Uh, take care of it in a way in which you hadn't taken care of it before. Speaking of maturity, why do you feel so strongly that true leaders have empathy, not sympathy? Because empathy is saying that I understand how you feel and I can understand all of your feelings. I I can understand them, but I don't need to experience them. In sympathy, I'm experiencing them. And I don't need to experience the feeling that you haven't been listened to, but I can empathize with that. And then I can find out how can I, how can I help you? How can I be of service to you so that you don't have to go through those feelings again? That's why empathy will just come from a different perspective because you're actually in charge with empathy. In sympathy, you've given away to the feelings, you've given away to the emotions, and therefore you're all wrapped up in it. That's why I focus on empathy. You also mentioned that leaders should source from the truth yeah, and not from what the leader thinks. Right. But the question is, we work with entrepreneurs all the time. I'm one of them that has a strong sense of intuition, and I usually follow intuition. How does intuition play into the truth? Well, if you have a set of dice and you want to go to Las Vegas, I'm going to say, baby needs a new pair of shoes. Let's roll them, baby. Let's go. (laughs) Intuition can serve you well if that intuition has really grown from a place and source of truth. So you may have grown from truth and your intuition is great. And so you're following it. But don't be misguided and don't misguide others to think that just because they think it means it's going to happen. And so realistically, you want to focus on the truth. Be a truth seeker. Seek out the information. So maybe you have an inclination that this is going to happen this way. Well, find out. Ask some questions. Get involved with other people. See what they've done. You don't need to experience it on your own. Like, you know, the craziest thing when you have kids is that they don't want to learn from your mistakes. They want to learn from their own. And so if you can find a way to help people learn from these other mistakes, then it's going to be so much better than if you uh, just really, you know, drug yourself through all of the messiness, you know? So I like to think like, I don't think I need to see somebody else fall off of a bike for me to figure out, maybe I should learn a little bit of how to ride it first to protect myself. I mean, I don't know, but that's just crazy me. But I like to think that I can learn a lot more if I ask some questions and gain some insight. And it doesn't make me less smart. And it doesn't make me less effective. It doesn't make me weak. It actually makes me stronger because I have really used all of these resources around me. It's one of the reasons I talk about in the book, Coalition Culture, and I do refer to it again in Fanny Rules, those seven attributes of an effective leader, because they're important. And the first one is being teachable. So I would say to you, Yuval, if you're not teachable, then the rest of the stuff isn't going to matter because your mind is already so made up that you don't have any room for anybody else and you don't have any room for anything else. You want to have room, not that you have to collect it all, but you want room. You want space. And so be teachable says, I will accept new information. I will accept somebody else's viewpoint that differs from mine. I will understand that that the concept of understanding it is not agreeing with it, but it's that I have an understanding of its basis. And then am I going to be compassionate? Will I have kindness and empathy and joy? Will those all be parts of my personality? Will I extend grace to someone? Grace is the unmerited favor that I give to someone simply because I can, not because they did something to deserve it. Will I seek the truth? Will I be humble in the things that I say and do in interactions with others? Will I have pure intentions? Meaning that, will I make choices and decisions that don't cause harm? And lastly, will I seek to make peace? As a leader, we sometimes overlook that. We sometimes will divide people. We move people to the left and the right 
whether we mean to or not. There may be peace at the left and peace at the right, but true peace exists in only one space and one space only, and that's in the middle. So we've got to get people to move to a place that neither person previously occupied to have true peace. And when that can happen, we're going to see some really great stuff. You led into the next question. How does humility and vulnerability factor in? Well, it does because, you know, first of all, being vulnerable means that, you know, it's not like I'm airing out all of my dirty laundry. You know, if you, if you look at it from anyone who might have a, a biblical sense, so I'll speak to those individuals from a faith perspective, it says that you should understand your sins, but you don't, you don't bring them forward like they're a badge of honor or courage. You know, you understand what they are. So if you have your vulnerabilities, you understand them. You don't wear them out in front just so that you can be a good, be viewed as a good person or, oh, I've had these hardships or these trials or tribulations. Vulnerability means that I am going to be the person who says, I don't know everything. I'm going to be vulnerable and that I need help to get this done. I'm going to be vulnerable in the fact that I made a mistake and I'm apologizing for my mistake before you even told me I needed to do that. And then to be humble I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's how will I respect you? How will I respect your ideas and making sure that I don't take your ideas from you, um, you know, and give you credit for the things that you do. Humility is not meekness at all. It's such a strong strength to have humility. It means letting other people go first and then yourself. I think those things are all important. I mean, if I didn't think they were important, I wouldn't put them in the book. And they're all grounded. There's a lot of research around all of them. So there isn't anything that I've said in the book that all of a sudden was something because I woke up on a couch one day and said, gee, it'd be great if I wrote a book. Let's include this stuff in the book. I said, let's include the stuff that makes sense, but let me do it in a way that you can understand it. Something that would be common sense. You know, Dr. Troy, by all measures, you're a success from where you came from to what you've accomplished. And many leaders and entrepreneurs struggle with imposter syndrome. I have a personal question for you. Have you contended with that personally? And if so, how did you manage to overcome it? Well, let me say this. We all have self-doubt. Imposter syndrome is not self-doubt. Imposter syndrome says, I give way to the fact that I'm not good enough or not deserving of what I get. I'm not like that. I work for what I get. And therefore, I accept it. But I don't have to brag about it. I don't have to pretend that it's a parade down Main Street and I start telling everybody everything that I've done or that, I've, or that I have. I think that individuals who uh, accept that imposter syndrome or deal with it may not have been clear in some of their own thoughts and some of their own things that are happening. And so therefore they're giving way to a voice that they shouldn't even be listening to. You know, if you work at what you have achieved, then it's your achievement. It's if you present yourself for more then you, yeah, you are an imposter. So it doesn't matter whether it's a syndrome name or not, but if I act like I know more than what I know, then I am an imposter. And so I don't act like more than what I know, and I'm willing to listen to what somebody else has to say, even if I'm confident in what I'm saying, I still will listen to what others have to say. If nothing else, it's just to show respect to the other individual that I do want to hear what you have to say. Maybe it won't change my opinion, because as a leader, I have the right to choose what I want, but I am going to respect your time and your thoughts and listen to them. They may change my mind, and they may not. I love the distinction feeling unworthy versus just having self-doubt. That's, that's a really huge uh, distinction for imposter syndrome. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become in order to achieve your success? I had to stop being my evil twin, which means that I had to stop trying to manipulate the things that were happening. And I had to start really focusing on really that character what's the person I want to be when I wake up in the morning? Gosh, I wanted to be successful. I wanted to have a great car, house, family. You know, my, I want to be centered in my faith and all those types of things were all important to me. But it's like, where was I doing text, techniques and tricks and things to get it? Or was I really being genuine about it? And that's what I had to do. I had to finally, the biggest thing that happened to me one day is I declared my best life ever. And so what I did is I had always like thought, well, I'm not quite where I want to be yet. So this isn't quite it. And I had all that kind of thing going on in my head. I finally said, well, what if I, what if I change that? What if I said, this is the best house I've ever had, best family, best relationship with God. I mean, whatever it is, like I just said, this is the best in the moment. Would that change my life? Would I then be settling for something that wasn't the very best? And all of a sudden I realized it wasn't because at every moment in time, it is the best. If you give your best, it is the best. And you shouldn't be competing against someone else. You're only competing against yourself. 
So each moment then becomes better each time you declare your best. So for me, I had to give that up. I had to really get away from all of that and just simply love what I'm doing, love people with all of my heart, even the messy ones, even the ones that sometimes aren't deserving, you know, into some degree with the hurtful, harmful things that they do. But I always think about for myself, the forgiveness that has been extended to me. I receive forgiveness every single day, which is the unmerited favor that I get for doing nothing but showing up. So why could I not extend some of that to someone else? Why could I not further humankind in a way that could empower people to really look at things differently and to say that if you, because you know what Einstein says, right? You do the same thing over and over again and you don't, and you want a different result. That's called insanity. And I'm like, no, I want a different result. And I want to be open to the future that is available to me that I don't even know about today. And it only happens when I become my best self at each moment. And I am open to the fact that I will learn something new and different. Because if I only rely on what I already know, then I may never get to that future that's out there for me. But if I open myself up to the possibility that there are multiple futures, but nothing is wrong with the future I'm in at the moment, then I should be able to get where I need to be. Dr. Troy, thank you so much for imparting incredible wisdom to the seven hatters. And as they're listening, I'm sure the question is, well, how do I get the books? How do I get the courses? How do I get to speak with this guy? Because he's fun. He's incredibly wise. So tell the seven hatters, how could they reach you? All right. Okay. So here we go. So it'll be easy. It's Dr. Troy Hall. So if you think of Dr. Troy Hall, Real easy. So it's at Dr. Troy Hall on social media and it's drtroyhall.com. And there's a connect form. There's a place to schedule a meeting with me. All that's available to you on the website. The books are available on Amazon. You can get them paperback, Kindle, and Audible. Uh, both Cohesion Culture and Fanny Rules were best selling titles. So they're still out there. You can still get them. Fanny Rules was number one in business and professional humor. And uh, I know my mom, she would be. She'd be very excited and embarrassed that she was the subject of a book, but uh, she was very deserving of that. And it's just a fitting way for me to, you know, pay tribute to someone's leadership. I mean, when you think about it, 12th grade education, all of this wisdom that I'm telling you about, this is not just, you know, me. I mean, of course, I picked up things along the way, but it all started with her and the, and the life that she taught me and my brother and, um, you know, my, and my sister through her lives. Thanks for letting me. Thanks for letting me gloat on her and share on her a little bit today. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure, and Dr. Troy, I'm so enthralled that I got to meet you and get to, and got to know you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Seven Hats podcast, and uh, I hope to to hear more of what you what you got coming. Well, thank you, thank you again for the opportunity. And you've all just remember, you don't have to know everything; you just need to be teachable. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Troy. Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hand on? And here's my takeaway. What makes an effective leader? That topic has been discussed since our cave days, but I just loved how Dr. Troy broke it down. Let's start with being teachable. If you're not teachable, the rest of the stuff isn't going to matter. Now that's fire. Leaders are always focusing their efforts on teaching others. But as Dr. Troy reminded us, effective leaders need to be just as teachable and perhaps even more than those they lead. Leaders need to accept new information, other people's viewpoints that differs from theirs. They don't have to agree with it, but they need to understand. That's why I love Stephen Covey's habit number five. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Once you're teachable, compassion, kindness, empathy, and joy are the next ingredients that go into the pot. Next is grace, the unmerited favor you give to someone simply because you can, not because they did something to deserve it. I love that. Will you seek the truth? Will you be humble? Will you make choices and decisions that won't cause harm to others? And lastly, Dr. Troy takes us up a few notches on the spiritual ladder and asks, will I seek to make peace as a leader? Will I unite those that I lead? Thank you, Dr. Troy, for reminding us that true peace exists only in one space and in one space only, and that's in the middle. 
I can tell you that I have written these leadership qualities down from my own introspection. And if I were you, I'd suggest you do the same. I want to thank Dr. Troy once again for joining us so we can benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck and I tip my hat to you.